0: Welcome to Line. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson, and I am a student doctor in my last year of medical school. Line brings listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness through an osteopathic lens. First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, how to succeed in medical school, and various topics in healthcare, including mental health, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I encourage you to seek the advice of a physician, a DO, or an MD, with any concerns or questions you have about your symptoms or medical conditions. Hello, everyone. Just a personal update, uh, since I am in my fourth year of medical school, now it is officially application season for the match. In case you're not familiar with medical education, which I did talk in a previous episode about the timeline of medical school and how different parts of the medical education come together, but... In case you are not familiar, during your last year of medical school, during the fourth year, early in the fall, there are applications that are sent to residency programs, and then throughout the fall, the winter, and then into the early spring, residency programs will interview applicants, and in March the students, the applicants, put a list of programs together that they would like to go to and then programs also put a list together of students that they want at their program. And residency is the additional training that doctors get after medical school in order to claim a specialty. So you graduate medical school, you are a DO or you're an MD, you're a physician, you're a doctor. However, you are not a family medicine physician. You're not an internist. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not an orthopedic surgeon you're not a pulmonologist until you go through the respective residency program. And residency programs can be anywhere from three years to seven years, I believe, for neurological surgery. So I'm going through that process right now. Programs are starting to reach out to students, so that is super exciting and I'm really looking forward to this exciting time in my life and being able to learn about different residency programs and interview with them. And I am really looking forward to talking more on the podcast about my experience during this season and talk more about specifics and offer advice and share just a little bit more about more about my story and how I decided on things and really better guidelines for students that go through this process in the future if you are a medical student listening to this right now. However, at this point in time I am going to be very vague about it and not offer a lot of details because so much of this is very personal And I know for a fact that residency programs, they're going to look up my name with my application and they're going to be listening to this podcast. So I know for a fact that people will be listening, and I don't want to alienate anyone, especially since my preferences might change over the interview season, and I don't want something to be taken out of context that I said earlier in the cycle versus what I actually feel later, and just keeping my private life a little bit separate for now. However, I wish I had someone that could offer me advice um, going through this process. So that's why it's really important to me after I've gone through all this process and learn how this process works and learn what works and what doesn't work and what I wish I did. So then I can actually offer that advice to students that apply in future years. Kind of similar to how I've had episodes in the past talking about my test-taking experiences. I waited until after I had the results of my exams before I offered advice, just because I want to come from a standpoint that I know what I'm talking about uh, so that I don't lead anyone astray. So that's just a life update. I really wish I had more details to share with you, but just wanted to say that I'm going through this process right now and I'm super excited about it, Um, but I will still prioritize getting episodes out every Monday. So this week I am going to be talking about uh, vaccines, and I think this is timely because it is the start of flu season. And flu shots have begun to be offered at doctor's offices and CVS and Walgreens. Anywhere where you can get vaccinations, they've started to offer flu shots. And I am right now rotating with a family medicine rotation and we offer flu shots in the office. And so many patients come in and say things like, well... I have never gotten the flu shot in the past and I've never gotten the flu, so I don't think I need the flu shot. And then there will be some people that say, well, I got the flu shot the last few years and I still get sick, so I don't think it really works, so I'm not going to get the flu shot. And then I know that with COVID, I still get patients uh, throughout my rotations, and it has now been recommended to get an additional booster shot this year. And there's a lot of talk about how COVID boosters are just going to become another kind of flu shot that you would need every year to get coverage in order to reduce your risk of transmission and reduce your risk of having severe illness. So that is to say that I think this episode is pretty timely with both the flu shot and COVID. So I want to first speak a little bit about what vaccines are, what they do, and what, because there's so many different types of vaccines, what all of these differences actually are. So what's the difference between a live attenuated vaccine and a a toxoid vaccine? So I'll start with that and then talk a little bit more about the flu shot and the COVID vaccines in particular. I've been trying really hard to establish this podcast in a interesting day and age of COVID-19 and really trying so hard to not talk about it every episode. I talked about it extensively in my first episode, but more in the realm of kind of bouncing back from COVID, having some resilience in the time of social distancing. And here we are, it's still around, and there are still a lot of misconceptions about viruses and about vaccines in particular. So I just want to talk a little bit about vaccines. So how do vaccines work? Okay, so they stimulate the immune system and encourage it to produce antibodies against whatever you're vaccinating for. So usually your immune system reacts to a bacteria or a virus by producing antibodies because it recognizes something called an antigen on the bacteria or virus that the body recognizes as foreign. And then they produce antibodies to really attack that antigen anytime it sees it. So that's why you have immunity. So the second time that you encounter this bacteria or virus, you are immune to it because your body knows how to handle it. It has antibodies ready to go to encounter that attack. Something like influenza, so like the flu, you can get every year and you would need to be vaccinated for every year. And that is because that virus mutates very fast and your body won't be able to protect against it um, because it changed and the target is different. If the virus was the same year to year, that wouldn't really be an issue at all. And so vaccines can therefore kind of be different in composition, but they really all work the same way to help your body create a response against it. So the the first one that's probably easiest to understand is the inactivated vaccines. So they use a killed version of a bacteria or a virus. So that is how hepatitis A vaccines work, that's how the flu shot works, and that's how the rabies vaccine works. So the killed version, there's no chance of it actually producing disease in your body. It is completely inactivated. Then you have something called live attenuated vaccines, which scare people. And that's kind of reasonable because it has It has the word live in the name as if it can cause disease, but it also has attenuated in it, which I'll explain why. So it uses a weakened form of a bacteria or virus, and this is actually better because it causes longer lasting immunity, usually for life. And because it's live attenuated, it usually has more complicated storage requirements in order for it to still be useful. But the only reason why you wouldn't want to use these is if you have a weakened immune system. And so those are people with AIDS receiving chemotherapy, people that have any like autoimmune condition that they have to receive medication that basically weakens the immune system. And that's only because these people cannot mount a response against these antigens that are included in the vaccine. But everyone else that's healthy that has a competent immune system can be fine with live attenuated vaccines. And we can even give babies live attenuated vaccines um, as infants the age of one. Then there's also something called a taxoid vaccine which is made chemically by toxins that the bacteria produces, and then your body creates an immune response just for the disease causing proteins that the bacteria produces. So it really doesn't do too much about the actual bacteria, but it does eliminate the part of the bacteria that does cause disease, and so an example of this is the tetanus vaccine. There's subunit vaccines that are really just uh, replicated that use the polysaccharide capsule of a bacteria and inject your body with that. So then your immune system creates a response around on the capsule. And therefore, any time that the bacteria enters your body, it will mount a response on the capsule. So this works really well with encapsulated bacteria. Unencapsulated bacteria, this wouldn't work for, obviously. So an example of that is Hib, which is the Haemophilus influenza vaccine. And then there's recombinant protein vaccines that are kind of similar. And it's recreating the antigen... Of a protein component of a virus or a bacteria. So it's not using the whole virus or the whole bacteria, but just the protein. And an example of this one is hepatitis B. So a new technology that we hear about with COVID is mRNA vaccines. And to go back to basic biology, you have DNA in your body, right? Okay, so the DNA gets transcribed into RNA. And that RNA then gets translated into proteins. So this is the way our bodies work. And this is also how viruses and bacteria work as well. And proteins are what we have in our body. Everything's made out of proteins. And then also in the case of bacteria and viruses, the proteins make more viruses and more bacteria or disease producing compounds that we don't want. So injecting the body with mRNA of COVID, for example, your body can mount a response to that. It can recognize just like the, the capsule, the subunit vaccine, and just like the recombinant protein vaccine, it recognizes it as foreign. So then when you have COVID enter your body and then your body's like, oh, I've seen this before. I know how to kill this. So then your body can mount a response. So that's basically the idea there. It's reacting to part of the virus. There's also something called recombinant vector vaccines that instead of using mRNA directly, they use a harmless virus or a bacteria as a vector, also known as a carrier, in order to then introduce the DNA or the mRNA into cells. So it kind of works the same way, but there's something to carry it. So speaking on influenza first. So influenza or the flu is a virus and it's spread via respiratory droplets. So from coughing, sneezing, And some of the the symptoms that are associated with the flu, I'm sure you're familiar with. This can include fever, chills, headache, joint pain, muscle pain, fatigue, and just a general feeling of being ill. And often people will also have a cough that is usually dry, uh, but may produce some sputum. And they can also develop bronchitis as well, which is inflammation of the bronchi in your lungs. And in older patients, they can also have some low blood pressure as well as slowed heart rate. And many times people get the flu and they're just sick for a while. They feel terrible for a while, but they get better. So for most of us, for the healthy Adults and adolescents, the flu isn't life-threatening. However, in certain populations, the flu can be life-threatening, especially with adults older than the age of 65. Infants and children below the age of 5, and especially babies below the age of 2. Pregnant patients are vulnerable, as well as anyone with immunosuppression with diabetes, with chronic kidney disease, with asthma, and with heart disease. Also, people with morbid obesity, where they have a BMI greater than 40, they're also at higher risk for complications. People that live in nursing homes when they are living close to other people that are also likely to be immunosuppressed or are likely to be over the age of 65, this is the population that is vulnerable to the flu. So a lot of times it's kind of similar to COVID now is that we really encourage everyone to get their flu vaccine, not only to protect themselves, but to also slow the spread so that they don't get people that are susceptible to these complications sick. So what, what are some of these life-threatening complications? Well, pneumonia is a big one. Um, and this is infection of the lungs, and this can be caused directly from the influenza virus, or it can be caused by bacteria following the influenza infection. And with pneumonia, you have trouble breathing, you can have cyanosis, or your skin can turn blue um, because of low oxygen, And it can progress to acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a reaction of your lungs that causes edema or swelling in your lungs, um, which is a very dangerous condition. It can also cause organ failure. If it's a bacterial pneumonia, it would need antibiotics, perhaps a hospitalization, or a need for ventilation. And influenza can also cause other complications like sinusitis, which is infection of the sinuses, as well as um, an ear infection or infection of the larynx and trachea. And in many people, influenza can really aggravate in underlining disease, such as congestive heart failure, heart disease, asthma, and COPD. And influenza can cause acute kidney injury and more rarely can cause cardiac issues and neurologic issues, like one is Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, so that is also something that, that can be caused by influenza. So it's not the common cult. I think a lot of people think like flu or common cold, you're out of work or or school for a few days and then you get over it, but influenza is a lot more severe than the common cold. Usually it doesn't lead to a life-threatening illness in healthy people, so it's hard to remember, so we have to remind ourselves that there are a lot of us that are at-risk members of the population that really do rely on herd immunity, everyone getting their influenza vaccines so that uh, people will not get influenza and have these really bad complications. So that's why we have the influenza vaccine and that's why it's readily available every year. And there's reason why we have an influenza vaccine and why we don't have a vaccine for the common cold. And it's because it is worth the cost of developing a vaccine and making sure that there's herd immunity in order to save lives whereas there isn't really that drive and that need for a vaccine for the common cold among other issues too but that's one of the the reasons for that so the influenza vaccine it's recommended in anyone above the age of six months old, but it is especially encouraged in high-risk individuals like I discussed. Individuals over the age of 65 and really any individual above the age of 50 definitely should have the flu vaccine. Women that are pregnant or could become pregnant during influenza season absolutely should have the flu vaccine. And then, Anyone that comes into contact with people that are high risk of complications from the flu. Uh, so people that work in healthcare or at nursing homes or customer service. And the, the vaccines are usually quadrivalent. And that means that it targets four different types of influenza antigens so that it increases coverage, and you you probably know now, he, maybe hearing about monovalent and bivalent for COVID vaccines, that that just means it attacks one strain or attacks two strains, but the flu vaccine is usually quadrivalent for four, and the most common is a intramuscular inactivated vaccine. It's the most common vaccine available, so that's probably uh, the one they usually get into your arm. But there's also uh, recombinant vaccines as well. And there is an intranasal vaccine option, and that's a live attenuated version. So when I hear patients say, Well, I never got the flu in the past, so I don't know why I need the flu vaccine. Well, for that, I say the flu virus doesn't really care. If you haven't had the flu in the past, it's a new year and it's doesn't mean you're immune to the flu. You just haven't been exposed to it. And maybe, maybe you did have the flu, but your body mounted a response so that you didn't get sick. But the virus doesn't care if you've if you've never had the flu before, it will still affect you if you are exposed. So I never really understood that argument. Like, all it takes is an exposure. Uh, So just because it hasn't happened in the past, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen in the future. So I do always encourage everyone to get their flu vaccine, no matter what their past history has been with it. Um, and then with people that say, well, I, I get the vaccine every year, but I still get sick. Well, it's possible that, yeah, you do get sick, but it's not the flu. Maybe it's the common cold, which we don't have a vaccine for. Or maybe, um, since you had the, the vaccine, it decreased the severity of your illness, and that's true with the COVID vaccines as well, that many people still get COVID after they're vaccinated. However, it is way less severe. Uh, We have studied this already, that it is way less severe in people that have received the vaccine versus those who have not, and that's relating to hospitalizations and need for medications and uh, ventilation and things like that also important to know that people can still get the flu after getting the flu vaccine because the flu vaccine is developed based off of the best guess of the strains that are going to be present in the population in that given year so it's not going to cover all strains that are possible so that's why people still get sick but the majority of the time the vaccines are pretty reliable in targeting the the strains that are going to appear. So we have seen year after year that the flu vaccines have been effective in reducing uh, rates of deaths, rates of complications and hospitalizations. And finally, with the COVID vaccine, I don't want to talk too much about this, but there is so much information uh, if you go to cdc.gov about COVID vaccines, but just kind of an overview right now, it is recommended that individuals who have gotten the primary series of doses, whether that's Pfizer, Moderna, after the primary dose series, many people have gotten a monovalent booster but now there is an updated bivalent booster that is recommended for everyone above the age of 12 and look on the website if you want specifics for um, children below the age of 12 but for individuals above the age of 12 to receive an additional booster. So for me I had the primary series of Pfizer and then I had a booster about A little over a year and a half ago. So I'm actually, so I would be eligible to get the additional booster. And anyone that it's been two months since either you finished the primary series or you had your last booster, then you are eligible to get this bivalent booster. And please view the website if you're um, immunocompromised because the recommendations are going to be a bit different. So the most recent booster uh, can target the Omicron variants as well as the earlier strains. So I have also been recommending patients that I see to look into getting the booster as well. So I hope that you learned something from this episode, a little bit more about details of vaccines and why they're so important. And I know I didn't Go into much detail about COVID during this episode, but if it is something that you're interested in, let me know and I will uh, definitely be able to produce a little bit more content about COVID. But I know that there is a lot of information out there and a lot of people talking about this topic, and I am definitely no expert. Uh, everything that I've said on this podcast, I made sure to look back and do my research and refer to CDC guidelines about... Uh, different specifics before I talked about it, but I obviously am not an expert and there are a lot of experts out there that know a lot more than me, so it's a lot easier for me to just defer to the experts, but if it is something of interest that you would want to hear my perspective on it and put things in more simpler, easier to understand terms than reading through all of the research and and um, all of the CDC articles that there are, then I am more than happy to do that. So just let me know about that. And please reach out um, if you have any suggestions in general about upcoming episodes. I would love to hear from you. Let me know that you like First Line. If you are listening on Spotify, tap the star to rate the show. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down and tap to rate or write a review. Thank you so much for your support. You can follow Firstline on Instagram at Firstline Podcast or on Facebook facebook.com slash firstline podcast. Stay tuned for a new episode every Monday.